Welcome to the T-Hud Podcast. I'm Moby. I'm Leland. Well, Steel. Leland, you know what? <laughs> Mr. Steel, you had to emphasize I've, I usually say the whole name, and then I didn't for some Well, reason. you know what? It's very important that the metal that you are be recognized. You're not bronze. <laughs> you're not right. tin. You're Leland Steel. Steel, goddammit. That's right. I was uh, joking on Twitter about um, if I were to ever have a proxy, and if I needed to send a proxy to some places, his name would be Reginald Iron. <laughs> Reginald Iron. <laughs> My proxy. You know, a Leland Steel stand-in. Not quite. It's as uh, sturdy and rigid no. and hard, but... well, no, Followed by Benny Bronze. <laughs> Benny Bronze. Aaron Aluminum. I gotta throw on a female name somewhere. You need, you need to add more estrogen to this metal. Yeah. Metal work. You know what sucks? We're recording at 7.30 p.m. and it's dark outside. It's fucking dark. Summer's over. Summer's over. It's and raining. It is pouring rain. Oh, jeez. Usually we're sweating to death when we make these things. Know, right? and that's what sucks, but... Uh, uh, listener, we, we beat off the guests for this month. Uh, beat them be, right be, off. Be, They're exhausted. <laughs> oh, I noticed the moment I said, I was like, is Leland going to, is he going to bite? Is he going to bite on this lure? I didn't know you were doing it on purpose or not. <laughs> it just happens. Isn't that what they say? It just happens. Yeah. Well, we should have a guest for next month. Um, it, I don't, when was the last time it was just you and I recording? Well, see, that's part of the th- reason why I picked this too. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. I know. It, it's, it's been forever. I'm guessing it's been like had three like... solid episodes since. Yeah. Well, we've had four consecutive guests on though, right? Right. So that's that's two months because I think we're running some of them as specials. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But still, that's a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's jump into this first episode of Fall. This episode, Fall Folly. Banter. You've actually got notes that, like, actually have English writing yeah. this time instead yeah. of a blank page. That's true. I'm very proud of you. Yeah. Um, of course, banter was neglected. Yes. Uh, yeah. I can. I, I got to take it a little bit at a time. I can't really write full notes for the whole episode for myself. I have to just I'll, – I'll work at just getting a couple segments down and then eventually I'll have notes for the entire episode. Maybe by episode 110, 115, right. I'll have a full – Word doc full of notes for myself for uh, each episode. Well, my banter is one banter, but I guess it's it's a substantive banter. Okay. It's it's the stew of banter compared to the minestrone soup of banter. It's hearty, meaty. hearty, hearty, baby. So, uh, my apartment uh, in our laundry room, we have a table that is for free stuff. So people leave free stuff there, and usually it's like old oven mitts that have already been burnt through, or like <laughs> so, wine glasses with you know rare Eurasian molds growing on them or something. It's a- like aka garbage. Ex- yeah, garbage. Except there's sh- it's shit nobody wants. But yesterday I go down at like nine p.m. So I think everybody else who is going to do laundry that day has already gone through. And on that table alone is a stack of three board games. Okay. On the top is the original Axis and Allies 1984. Wow. So that's what caught my eye. Now, I have that game, so that's fine. I also have Marty's version of that game. I've had it for 15 years. I don't know if he willed it to me when he died, but I'm keeping it. Yeah, 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 I'm sure. Um, it may have been overlooked by his estate, but I'm, yeah. That's right. I remember when they dispensed his estate, uh, there was a lot there. 
took up. It was mostly empty protein bottles. Right. Protein shake bottles. And, you know, I don't like know why he saved them. Um, I know there was some urine in them that had yeah. been, there was some masking tape that said for clean drug test. Um, ah. Yeah. Well, so he did I, have that phase where he was selling his bath water, too. Yeah, I know. Could have been selling it in five pound jugs. I mean, that was the weirdest thing. Like, he, he goes on Twitter right when the bathwater thing becomes a craze. So, his right. very first tweet is, hey, Twitter, it's Marty. I have abs in bathwater. And it's a like hot kick. It, it did. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I mean, Donald Trump follows him right away and yeah. says, you know. That blue I, check. That Marty got his blue own check. blue check. He did. He did. In fact, he got his blue check before he even clicked to submit his application right. to Twitter. Yeah, I remember Twitter that. just he just typed Marty and it's like verified. <laughs> <laughs> Marty. You say you need to say no more. I love how we're dead panning this bullshit. <laughs> we could do a whole episode going usually, down a Marty usually rabbit. Usually I'm doing this by by myself. It's nice to have somebody to <laughs> Well, you know what? It's the memories that count. Ah, that's true. And he yeah. was a good friend. Can't blue check mark memories. <laughs> no. <laughs> so anyways, back to the board game. <laughs> I don't know how we got off on that tangent. Um, so I had access and allies, but underneath were two really good board games, which I quickly swiped. Obviously, I haven't played them yet. Uh, I would like to because they both seem pretty cool. And one of them I think you'll really like. Um, so the first one that I'm actually most interested in is called A Line in the Sand. And the game is for between two to six players, but the game changes based off the number of players. So the game that's just two players is America versus Iraq, like Gulf War. Uh, so it's all modern combat. This is like early 90s. But then when it's three players, it's turns into like the six day war where israel fought egypt and i think it was syria so then it becomes a one-on-two from a completely different war hmm. and that goes all the way up that escalates through different wars until it gets to six player when it gets to six player it transforms into this like completely different game which seems almost um twilight imperium like yeah where there's kind of um, diplomatic circles. There's neutral states. There's like the U.S., which is hostile to Iraq and Iran, but they're not necessarily at war. And then there's um, Arab nations, which are like more aligned to Iraq and Iran, but you can actually sway them to America's side. And likewise, America has friendlier states, but can be swayed to the, you know, Iraq-Iran side. Right. And it introduces some pretty cool concepts. It actually has a diplomatic pouch. And what okay. you do is you can write secret messages and put them in this pouch and deliver them to the other player. But when the other player reads the message, they have to then put it into another pouch, which is like the United Nations of Messages. I forget what it's called. Okay. And you have resources and you can actually spend resources as like diplomatic capital to then read those secret messages that have been passed. So then you have oh. you can discern who gave this message to whom, right. who's trying to sway whom. Like and you it, pull it out of the like the UN bag. Yes. Oh. So it'll, you'll get a random message, yeah. but 
it, it'll give you with something. The, in the context of the game, it may be easy it, it or be, difficult to seize out who is sending. Exactly. Who, yeah. And you may be able to Very figure out what cool. people are doing. That sounds super cool. So it, it does sound really cool. So I want to play it with yeah. you at some point. I mean, hey, it was free and, and we can review it. Sounds so, rad. Yeah. The second game Supremacy. And Supremacy is interesting because Line in the Sand, I looked it up on eBay. You can get a used copy like I had for like 15 bucks. Line in uh, Supremacy started at like 50 bucks Canadian. Mm-hmm. And so I'm starting to think, okay, this is like rarer or better. So su- Supremacy is either like a risk on steroids or a watered down Axis and Allies. It depends on how you want to look at it. It has fewer units, but it's a little bit more complicated than risk. And it's basically about uh, the two superpowers in the Cold War, U.S. and Russia, right. Soviet Union, I should say jockeying for position with a bunch of neutral states which players can play canada is a distinct state Mm -hmm. and then they have a number of resources like oil steel um, etc they use to build weapons and then you, you can attack when you're ready to attack and what's really cool is one of the units is nuclear bombs oh boy nuclear bombs wipe everything out of a space but then that space can never be recovered it actually has like mushroom cloud meeples or whatever like oh, okay yeah, like yeah. explosions yeah um yeah this game's sounding familiar actually okay but the reason why you would love this game yeah. is if you manage to nuke enough states it becomes nuclear winter and it forces a draw <laughs> oh, an yeah. official draw oh love me a good draw yeah, i know leland loves them <laughs> loves in them draws it's just an excuse to play again to get to another draw <laughs> and you just draw, draw, draw. Mm. Uh, so anyways, those two games, um, I'm really hoping wow. we'll play at some point. Nice score. Because, uh, yeah, totally for free. Yeah, so I got to pay it for it. I got to put a burnt oven mitt down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do actually have one. And I have one good one. So <laughs> Anyways. Um, well, I mean. I've um, most of my spare time lately has been occupied by playing Oxygen Not Included. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that. Um, it's super fun. Uh, video game and it's basically like you get you you don't you, you have what are called dupes like duplicates and they're they're like clones they all have different attributes and there's a, a set of a bunch of skills that they're all they may be good or bad at and as you play the game you randomly get every few cycles which is like a day in the game or whatever you get a random generation of like four or whatever you could pick from the printing pot as they are clones, right? But anyways, they're they're dropped into the middle of this world and like literally in like underground in the middle of this world. And you have to dig out the different biomes and because there's different types of materials and metals and, you know, there's algae and different gases like uh, chlorine and hydrogen and of course managing oxygen and food so your duplicates survive. And you don't control any of them directly, but you give them commands. And, um, like, you know, if you want them to dig out, you give them a dig command. Or uh, you set down little blueprints of, of buildings that, that then they, it's a construction command and that kind of thing. It's uh, It actually just got its, um, like, full launch for the longest time it was in beta. But, you know, on Steam, still available, like many games on Steam do. And... Um, yeah, it's really it's they've kind of like polished it up really nicely. There's a lot of cool stuff, um, especially when you get late. Eventually, late game, like you are sending rockets into space, and you're like literally building rockets and then 
making sure you can fuel them and stuff and that's awesome it's super fun it's like strangely addicting i um i've never been to space i have not got i've never made it that far not because i because everybody died but because i get to a point i'm like man this base sucks i'm starting over you know this really is sounding like you talking about factorio just to say yeah, it's 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 really it's it's way different, obviously, okay. but it's kind of like uh, it feels Does like it have the similar mindset. addiction level. Yeah, well, Factorio's on a whole other level as far as addiction goes. Right. Um, so this is not quite. I just like I really like. It's funny though. I like the cons. I almost almost like the concept and thinking about playing this game more than actual actually playing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, because like. Like, doing some things, like, take a lot of time. <laughs> and, like, every time you generate a map, it's randomly generated, right? You know, resources are different places. Pockets of water are, are in different places. Uh, the natural plants are always, you know, all in different places. And, I don't know, there's a lot, a lot. It's just really cool. Like, you have to manage germs and, like, food poisoning and stuff. And there's, like, slime biomes that have slime long over the place. And it's a pain in the ass when it gets through your base and contaminates all your air and all this stuff. Hmm. It's super fun. Maybe I should look into it at some point. Yeah, um, you might like. I it. think I you might, might like enjoy it. it. It's um, I don't know. It's cool because you like you know you 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 research and you ramp up tech right, and so yeah. you just advance and it's nice because you basically can choose. You know, there's five or six different tech trees, and you can research them in any order you want, right? So, right. Uh, I actually just started a new map, and it's quite a very hot map. The temperature, because you also have to regulate temperatures. If your dupes, if they're in like temperature that's like upwards of seventy-five degrees Celsius, then they'll they'll burn mm. <laughs> and scald and be injured, right? Uh, and they could die. So I I rush some tech so I can get some insulated tiles so I can build insulation around my base where it's nice and cool still before the heat kind of nice. creeps in and that kind of stuff. Oh, that's cool. It is cool. Yeah, that does sound fun. But I, the reason I just restarted is because I, the, my previous map, I um, I was in a world that had like a subsurface ocean. So there's a lot of salt water um, near the top of the map. And I had made this huge fucking salt water pit. And I think something broke or something. Um, and like slime line was everywhere. And then I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to try to flood my base. So, because the the saltwater, the hot saltwater pit I I made, I had insulated this big tub of it, and it was above my base. So I just cracked the bottom of it, and it just poured into my base and just started flooding everything. I think I had like fifteen duplicates, and in like five cycles, I had like four. Wow. Because <laughs> everyone died and like the water, like, you know, it flooded my food, so it killed all my plants and everyone was starving and it flooded my machine so that it wasn't producing oxygen. <laughs> way to, uh, yeah, way to be an anarchist. Yeah. It's very like, I don't know. It kind of gave me like Simsy vibes a little bit, but you know, okay. Mm. I don't know. It's fun. That's awesome. I rec- I'd recommend it for sure. Any other banter? I only had the one. No, no. I think we can get right into Right into condescending controversy. Yes, listener, it's been a while. Ooh, it has been a while. It has been a while. I don't remember this. the last one we did. Uh, neither do I. I. I wonder if that's the one where Was we ended up Jam? agreeing with each other oh, yeah, so much. Oh, yeah, I know what it was. <laughs> I think our best one so far has been Space Jam. Space Jam was good. <laughs> yeah. Space Jam was a legitimate 
like intellectual philosopher cafe <laughs> level condescending. Why no? I do believe that LeBron James will make a superior addition. Would you like another London fog? So this one I thought because I don't I'm not sure if we'll do a Halloween special. We might. I want to leave that door open. But in case we don't, because we are going to have a guest for October 15th who's interested in other shit, that we do something kind of Halloween related. Right. I mean, I saw fucking Halloween signs on some of the stores like last week of August this Whoa. year. It was insane. Wow. I watched a crane put a huge Halloween sign on, oh, what was it? I think it was like a Michael's craft shop store crazy place. so it's crazy but so, i mean this one sorry to interrupt you okay. something just went through my brain here when did the remake of halloween come out was that last I think october that was a year yeah are you kidding me it's been a year since we saw that theaters already and talked about it yes but it feels wow. like a year for me and it obviously doesn't it for does me. not for it me. doesn't feel longer than a year but it Holy feels about a year shit what's happening uh, I'm not sure, but isn't aren't they releasing the second one like this year? I don't know. Okay, I, I what, that's what I was. I want to see thinking. it though, because me too. The, first, the, the remake was good, or the or the continuation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, much better than Mandy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't bring that up. <laughs> Nick Cage should just do the rest of his movies from the bathroom. It's the only place he's good in. <laughs> um. So this condescending controversy will be Leland trying to argue that Freddy Krueger is a superior, scary villain. Um, compared to Jason Voorhees, who so, I'll be arguing. What exactly is the criteria for who's better? Because, okay, full disclosure, both of these franchises are near and dear to my heart. Right. Um, I grew up on both of these franchises. Like, grew up watching them and being enamored with both of these franchises. Obviously, the majority of both released uh, well before or around the time that I was born. So. Right. <laughs> Okay, so I did actually think of that, and then what I thought was it would be more interesting for me to just see what direction you go. Okay. Um, I'm going to go in a pretty linear direction, so I'm letting you know that right now. And my direction was basically inspired by – I had never seen Freddy versus Jason, mm -hmm. but I knew of it. And before I even watched it, I'm like, there, there's no way they're going to leave a definitive winner of this movie. Right. And so – I want to see the when they actually fight because I heard that was only at the end. And yeah. so when they fight, how that battle goes and and what the quote-unquote resolution was of that. Uh, but there's a lot of criteria you can look at. I don't – I mean, this is just a guess. I don't think this is going to be one of our heated condescending controversies. <laughs> but it could very well be. I mean, Maybe. I just want to leave it open-ended. Sure. So – I guess the biggest point that I had about Jason Voorhees is that on a level of a monster that kills people, he is simply a stronger, more brutish villain with more potential to kill. And my premise for that is that all his killing is done in the real world. The whole point about Freddy is that what he does in the dream world affects people in the real world right but on those times and multiple occasions where he goes to the real world he's actually quite weak and i'm wondering what you would say to that as a rebuttal or does it not matter or what no no i definitely uh would have to concede that point to you i mean 
Jason Voorhees' kill count alone is in the upwards of hundreds. Right. Um, just because, well, I, I, through the, his film franchise's lore, um, by the time you get to Jason X, which came out in 2002, even in that movie, they, they say his, like, he's been killing for decades. <laughs> like, <laughs> literal decades he's been killing for. <laughs> in that world... Overpopulation's not a thing. No, because Voorhees solves it. He's yeah. cleaning house. He's <laughs> keeping humanity consistent. And and yes, Freddy does have a significant weakness as in the lore of his franchise, he gains his power and effectiveness from fear. Fear of him in particular. So yeah, I certainly concede that point to you. I'll give you I'll give the floor to you to make. So I I believe uh I believe Freddy is a more interesting killer. He's much more creative and he works he works the magic within his own limitations, right? And mm-hmm. the job that he's given, he's great at. And yes, Jason is also a very very prolific and experienced killer, but I just like Freddy's flair and I just the campiness of the of the franchise in general and yeah maybe I'm coming from a point of more like franchise versus franchise as opposed to character versus character yeah that's kind of what I was thinking maybe anyways um so I don't know just like I I I find that the, both these franchises have um many parallels especially like starting out um it really wasn't until uh, Nightmare on Elm Street three, uh, Dream Warriors, where Freddy, Freddy became Freddy, where like right, where, where they go into his backstory a bit, right? Well, n- not did, not necessarily that, but I mean, I mean by like, England hammed it up. Oh, Robert okay. England was able to ha- like ham it up because in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, it was very clearly going for to to actually be frightening. And Freddy has very very little dialogue in that. Certainly, some memorable kills. One of you know one of the most cited kills is of course Johnny Depp. Yeah, the, uh, the, geyser. The, spirit, the geyser of blood in his in his bed. Yeah, but then in the in the converse, the original Friday the Thirteenth didn't even have Jason Voorhees in it. It was Pamela Voorhees that was doing all the killing. So in part two of Friday the Thirteenth, finally Jason is there. But it's not the hockey mask wielding Jason that we all know and love. He's actually had, he, he, for the entirety of that movie, he has a burlap sack over his head. And in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, it, it was a, quite actually a departure from the original Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, as in the, the, the loose lore set out in the first movie was not, almost feels like it was ignored as it was kind of like the protagonist in Freddy's Revenge was like, almost being possessed by Freddy and and willed to don the glove and and kind of be the in a, in a weird way to to revive Freddy um very strange and also Freddy's revenge is really the only movie in that franchise that has a male main protagonist against Freddy oh really yeah predominantly like like I mean the original Nightmare on Elm Street Nancy she's definitely the main adversary of Freddy and in uh, every subsequent movie after Freddy's Revenge, it's always been a female lead, hmm. which is interesting. But then both again, so so Nightmare on Elm Street three, Freddy is he's like the campy the, and Dream Warriors is my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street. It's the best. It's like um takes place in like um 
it's not, it's like a it's it's kind of like a um uh, a mental ward, but it's more like for troubled youth kind of thing. Okay. Um, some of them have some idiosyncrasies that would you could I mean at the time was certainly I mean in '88 Dream Warriors came out certainly would have been equated with some form of mental illness whether or not it's you know medically classified as such now whatever but uh, that was my favorite. But then in Friday the 13th part 3 we finally see Freddy he gets this hockey mask like halfway through and become or sorry Jason and becomes the Voorhees yeah, that everyone, the iconic Voorhees. That's an interesting parallel. Voorhees. Because I kind of went through a quick summary of them I saw some YouTube videos but I didn't put two and two together that within the yeah, same film of the respective franchise but that that is true. And so by the time Friday the 13th part 3 came out in 84 that same year, the first Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Mm, so Fr- Friday the 13th has more installments in its franchise and is a little longer running than uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. One thing I, I I was willing to concede that Freddy had the more creative kills. That's yeah. actually one of two things. I don't. I'll tell you the other thing I was prepared to concede if you don't name it about Freddy. And along with the creativity is he himself is a more entertaining character because right. of that hamminess he comes to. I mean, like, Jason Voorhees is really one-dimensional. I mean, he's... Yeah, yes. He's yeah, just, absolutely. Well, I mean, he's... You know what he is. He's your stereotypical slasher. Brute, yeah. Killer, right? Yeah, to the point that, you know, often imitated in video game and artwork. You know, the hockey mask is, is iconic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so my second point is that for all his one dimensionality and this is just an opinion but because of how freddy krueger becomes hammy you know the the comical geyser kills or whatnot i find that jason Voorhees is a scarier villain Hmm. i I don't have any other way to sugarcoat it or add to it okay i personally find him scarier I, i i can i can totally see that i think conceptually Freddy is much more scary. Not being able to sleep, not being able to be safe when you sleep at, at where everyone is yeah, their most vulnerable. That is true. So <laughs> that's uh, uh, that. It, it's kind of tough. Also, his, his uh, and this is another conceding to Freddy. This is so far following our recent condescending. <laughs> <laughs> I I find that razor glove of his yeah. much more cringeworthy than the okay. machete. I mean, another point that I have, my third point is that the machete is the better weapon. And maybe that's such a minor point to bring up. You know, it's a better weapon. I didn't even know I was going to bring it up. But then one of the things I watched was a watch moto, Mojo Freddy versus Jason. And they did bring up that the machete was the better weapon. So okay. Like, okay, if it was enough for them, I should bring it up on the podcast. Okay. So I, I'm saying that on one hand, but I'm also saying that the glove is way more cringeworthy. Yeah. But the kills that I saw with the glove, they didn't go like as hard R with those kills as I wanted them to. Hmm. You know, you'll see the camera cut away and someone will be flailing on a bed and then you'll see a scratch. But it's like, right. those shit in real life would like... Yeah, but I, I would argue that the Freddy's real weapon is the dream itself. Mm, okay. Um, like, that's where his true effectiveness lies. Right. I mean, in... Um, in I think it was Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the Dream Master. Uh, there's there's a kill he has where it's um, this woman who's very physically active and fit and prides herself on being so. She's 
she's bench pressing. And oh boy, uh, the main protagonist, she and uh, one of the other dudes, like she's rushing on her on her way and grabbing him and trying to get over to her because she knows that she's in danger. Her friend, the weightlifter, is in danger. And you see those two characters in this loop get to run to the guy's truck, get in and take off. And then again, and then and then exact same thing. And then after like the fourth time, they're like, oh shit. We're all asleep. We're in a loop. Oh, no. Oh. And then you cut to the, the weightlifting uh, girl and she's benching and Freddie just over her and pushing the bar down on her. Oh. And she's fighting and her elbows snap. <laughs> oh. Is it like compound fracture? Like, no. So, so, yeah. Like her elbows snap and the skin slides off and she her arms come out and she has cockroach legs for arms. <laughs> what? And wow. then and then she's like running from Freddy and um he's chasing her and she trips and falls and she's just getting stuck to the floor. And then eventually kind of like pans away and Freddy just picks up this roach motel. Oh. He's like, "Yeah, check in, but you don't check out." And then he just squishes <laughs> the motel in his hand and just like, you know, guts fly out and it's like it's just Dude, like the weirdest. That's crazy. It's so weird. It's so weird, but it's so entertaining. It's so entertaining. And, you know, you, you, you pair that to, you know, uh, as far as creativity goes for Jason Voorhees, it's, it's maybe uh, skewering some guy in the eye with a corkscrew. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that kind of comparison as far as the, the entertainment value of the kills. Yeah, it, it, there is less entertainment value. Yeah. I do like how he stabs Freddy with his nub. Oh, uh, yeah. Nub arm. <laughs> yeah it's like there's so much brute power yeah. that he doesn't even need to have anything except a nub <laughs> one of the points i had again i haven't seen all the friday the 13th so i don't know who he's consistently trying to kill but certainly in the first movie of each respective franchise i found the killing of camp counselors much more satisfying than kids like i wanted <laughs> to see cocky annoying counselors die Right. Um, well, actually, I don't believe that Jason ever kid. on screen kills a child. Um, well, well, but I, I, I understand what you're no, saying. No, but it was meaning like so. Freddy doesn't kill a child, so I'm I'm arguing that Jason killing counselors is is more satisfying than Freddy killing kids or teenagers. Okay. Okay. Like, like I get, okay, I got what you're saying. I got what you're saying. And I could get on board with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, a lot of the characters in, Night- in, in Nightmare on Elm Street movies, like, you don't care about outside of the main protagonist, really. Right. Um, okay. I, I, you, can, you can take that one. I totally get that. <laughs> uh, what's another one that you got there to throw at me? I think that overall, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is a stronger franchise as far as um, consistent quality of film. Right. That is, yeah, that is true. Night, uh, Friday the 13th has been kind of a roller coaster sometimes. Yeah. Um, there's been there's, entire outings that I know you hate. There's two distinct installments in Friday the 13th that are really bad. And for you, they are? They are uh, F- Friday the 13th 5, A New Beginning, and Friday the 13th 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Jason Takes Manhattan is the worst f- horror film ever made. Like not even Honestly. entertaining, just like shitty. It is so. It is so. Being a fan of the franchise, it is so infuriating to watch. Um, it's like literally. It's so lazy. It's lazy. It's just literally like Jason teleports. 
wherever he needs to be, he is. He teleports. And it's not surprising that that movie is such a clusterfuck because it had quite a bit of uh, production problems. Mm. So, original. So, okay. So, many people. After, um, after Friday the 13th, 7, The New Blood, which Friday, it pits uh, Jason against a telepathic. Uh, protagonist she's quite powerful um it's a it's actually a pretty good movie that's a pretty good one so met her like that that actress and her male counters uh part in that movie they both made like pen their own scripts for the next one and so like tons of people are making scripts for this next friday their day and eventually they settled on, on one one guy um the 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 direct the one who ended up directing he he wanted to do a he conceptualized two different things, either like Jason, like roaming around the bowels of like a cruise ship and, you know, envisioning like this claustrophobic, like, where can we go? We can't, we can't, we can't even run from I actually Jason. like that idea. Or Jason let loose in a major, like a metropolitan city. So they decided to do both. Oh. And, and that is Jason takes Manhattan. Although, um... So so yeah so the first three the first three quarters of the final movie was on this boat. It's this you know graduating class of students that they're they're taking this trip to New York, and yeah the first three quarters of it are on this boat, and then they they had illusions of grandeur for this for all these New York shots these cool you know they wanted to have a boxing match on the Brooklyn Bridge that they did end up having. That, you know, boxing match on the roof of a building, a random building. <laughs> um, they wanted, like, um, they wanted a bunch of Times Square shots. And they wanted, like, Jason, like, you know, ru- um, cutting into, like, Broadway plays and all this stuff. <laughs> nice. But the movie only had, like, a $5 million budget. Oh. And filming in New York uh, was way too expensive. So they had to dial a bunch of stuff back. And actually, a lot of the, a lot of that movie was actually shot in Vancouver. Oh. Um, <laughs> so ultimately, they ended up with maybe 20 minutes of new york stuff and it was generic gritty like back alley that they shot in la a lot of the alley shots they shot in los angeles new york like it was it was not it was not it was not it was definitely not a showcase of new york that is for sure (laughs) so it's so bad okay it's so bad and the very end of that movie ends in um the two the two main protagonists in the sewers running around uh, that for some reason at midnight the sewers of New York uh, flush with radiated water, <laughs> like this toxic radiated water, and they're in there, and of course Jason is chasing them. And Marty went to the washroom. Yeah, and flushed. And, flushed. and so Over Jason once. gets Jason gets <laughs> stuck in this toxic water, and he melts and reverts back to his child form. That makes no sense. And then the movie ends. That makes no sense. <laughs> doesn't make any sense wow <laughs> the, the movie that's, i'm gonna concede that <laughs> wow that is pretty shitty and then the next installment jason goes to hell the final friday completely ignores all of that it opens up you know jason is at this point a very prolific killer enough to draw the attention of the fbi and they set up a sting to try to kill him and they blow him to pieces literal pieces and then they're collecting him and his body gets back to the morgue and his heart beats and attracts the mortician to devour it. And he possesses, and Jason possesses. What, what else do you do with the beating, <laughs> with the beating heart? heart of the you man. devour it. And so Jason possesses 
um, this man and eventually, you know, hops from body to body possessions and until eventually he's fully restored for the climactic battle and is stabbed in the heart with some ancient Voorhees relic sword or some shit. Like the only thing that could kill wow. him and, and send him back to hell. <laughs> the sword but, from House Voorhees. But at the very end of that movie, because at this point, the Friday the 13th franchise was no longer owned by Paramount Pictures, but picked up by New Line Cinema, same people who own Nightmare on Elm Street. Very end of that, you see Freddy's claw come up and grab Jason's discarded mask and drag it down underground. <laughs> oh, nice. What a way to end it. Right. And then 10 years later, we get Jason versus Freddy. Or Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Man, that was a long point. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my final point was that... Um, and, I mean, you might go, like, yeah, but what does this mean in the overall enjoyment of the franchise? Uh, Jason has the more, the better, more brutal kills, the more realistic kills. And I think you kind of have to concede that. Like, what I liked was um, in Jason X, the liquid nitrogen kill. I just loved <laughs> yeah. how, like, the that girl fights back. And I really put myself in her shoes and it was a great special effect of how she goes liquid nitrogen. Like, they don't cut away. They actually show, like, her slowly freezing. Like, and mm-hmm. I love how he smashes her face, but instead of, like, it exploding like some ice cube, it actually just smashes the front of the face, and there's still, like, flesh behind yeah, it because absolutely. the liquid nitrogen has pierced all her flesh. I was like, that kill is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I will say... um, Strangely, I think Jason X really is where Friday the 13th franchise jumps the shark. But it took him 10 installments to really get there. Mm. Um, because anytime a horror franchise goes into space, it's really jumping the shark. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other points for Freddy? Or um, No, I just, I just, I like, Nightmare on Elm Street to me is the superior franchise. I, I will concede that. I will concede that uh, Freddy is the more interesting character. Uh, my second point I was willing to concede was he had the better backstory, that he was a serial killer. Oh, okay. Back with the devil. Okay. So I think because I will agree with you that it's a more consistent franchise, I will actually say that it's a more entertaining franchise. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's scarier, and I don't think as a pure slasher, Freddy is a better monster. But I'm willing to give this the slight edge to Freddy. You've well, and I'll, uh, but I'll concede to you that Jason is um, the more efficient killer. And as far as movie experience is um, way more scary. Like watching the film, like the film, the Friday the 13th films are supposed to, are meant to be scary. Whereas by the time you get to like the fourth, uh, third or like fourth and fifth installment of Nightmare on Elm Street, like every, like you're not watching them to be scared as you would be with a traditional horror flick hmm. so i guess listener it's really how you take your poison if you're actually after a horror movie like a traditional classic slasher yeah you got to go with friday the 13th if you want a franchise that's going to give you entertainment and a really interesting character that's and memorable you know, memorable yeah. and memorable kills even if they're crazy <laughs> like you know old faithful coming out of a bed yeah um then you go with with uh nightmare on elm street so but, now not part of the plan discussion but where would you put in michael myers in this boat if it became a, a triple threat match 
Because, yeah, Jason was um, directly influenced by the Halloween. Right, right. You can tell that. As I believe the first installment of Halloween came out in 78. Maybe maybe earlier in the 70s, but like mid to late 70s. To to me, Halloween is definitely the the progenitor of the slasher franchise. It it sets so many tropes. Um, But I'm the kind of guy that I'm not held back by tradition. I see the improvements that these other franchises have made off the proto slasher that is Halloween. Yeah. And I, I still really enjoy Halloween. I just found both, you know, we didn't have a third person here. So I found both Freddy and Jason more intriguing, more worthy of a face off since they've actually faced off as right. well. Sure, sure. So where where would I put Halloween? Honestly, below both of them, but I respect it. I agree. And I respect what Agreed. it meant. I was never, never big on the Halloween franchise. Well, I don't know why. No. Like it seemed, it would have seemed like a natural transition as, as a kid. Like, well, I'm already into these, like, nightmare, like this, the, these tent poles, right? Of, yeah. of like late 80s, early 90s slasher flicks. I, I think at the end of the day, once you see all three franchises, Halloween isn't as engaging as the other two i mean yeah. it certainly had its consistency issues that's why they flushed down the toilet yeah the recent uh halloween's right so <laughs> yeah well if we want to get into remake none of the remakes for either of these franchises both of these franchises have had the, a remake friday the 13th was remade in 2009 and uh nightmare on Elm street in 2010 uh, and there are talks of another nightmare on elm street remake with possibly Robert Englund reprising his role, um, but New Line Cinema says that they're they're pretty busy with the Conjuring franchise. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I wouldn't have any high hopes. So I mean, at the end of okay, because these franchises are more closer to your heart than me, I'll let you score it either slightly in Freddy's favor or a draw. Well, I actually think I might have the clincher here because I think it's pretty even. One note that I had almost missed here. So, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, franchise gross, $457 million worldwide. Uh, Friday the 13th, $529 million worldwide. Wow. But Friday the 13th has an extra two movies in its franchise. That is discounting Freddy vs. Jason. That's removed. Well, I mean, I don't know what those totals reflect that. But number of films without Freddy vs. Jason... Friday the 13th has two more installments. So number-wise, Nightmare on Elm Street would, would have a slight edge, you would think. Prorated. I'm going to do that math right now. Eight movies for Nightmare on Elm Street, discounting Freddy vs. Jason. 57.13 mil per movie. And Friday the 13th oh, just edges it out 52.9. Wow. Damn! So it's more profitable per film. It is. I guess that's got to, I mean, by the numbers, it pushes the edge over to Friday the 13th, even with this myriad of of categories. But personally, Nightmare on Elm Street is the winner for me. So Nightmare on Elm Street has your heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Friday the 13th has the mind. Right. In the number wind. two in your programs, but number one in your hearts, Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> well, listener, why don't you vote? By Patreoning us, <laughs> you give us four hundred dollars. That's that might that's sweat. Freddy. That might five hundred dollars. It's Jason. <laughs> Send in your votes. <laughs> it's an election year. Twenty twenty is coming up. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I think it's time not- for crazy about cardboard. 
where I see you've titled this Mechanical Aptitude. Um, so before we kick in, okay. as this segment, we will be discussing some of our favorite uh, mechanics. Right. Or are they mechanisms? As that seems to be not a raging debate, but it pops up to, from time to time within board various corners of the board game community. Should you call them a mechanic or a mechanism? Uh, well, to be honest, you've caught me, like, off guard here. I didn't know that was an issue. Sure. Um, well, so, of course, the main argument is, you know, uh, for something to be mechanical, it resembles some, you know, autom- automated parts, robotic parts. And then, like, a mechanism is a moving part within this mm, entity. Mm. So, I, I, I think mechanism is more accurate as, you know, as far as... The mechanism mechanisms of a game are the moving parts in which compri- comprise the rules and, and how the game works. I can run with mechanism. Sure. I might I might do a slip of the tongue there. I know it was traditionally called me- mechanic, but right. mechanism Pre- does make predominantly sense. like this vernacular of mechanic has has developed, and that's what everyone says. And everyone knows when you say mechanic, you also mean you are also saying mechanism. Okay. <laughs> like it's like this. I don't know. It's pretty pedantic if you ask me, but. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I didn't. I just wanted your hot take on it. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 So I, my take on it is, even though I'm surprised, I do prefer mechanism. I, I really do. I can see that. I can see that. Um. So favorite mechanisms, Leland. Okay. I just kind of made a quick top three. I don't know how many you came up with. I've got a top five, but I only oh, okay. really want to discuss a couple of them. Okay. Um. You just want to. Kinda... Or I've, wait. I've got a, a top four. Um. Well, why don't we just lay them out and sure. have a loose discussion, see if any of them overlap. Sounds good. So for me, um, as I was kind of thinking about it and really putting them together, uh, these three could really be way more generalized as far as, you know, themings of game. Almost like, you know, if you think like, okay, uh, I really like deck building and like, okay, and you have a, literally an entire game that is deck building. There, There's those types of mechanisms, I think. And there are also kind of the more nuanced mechanisms that could be just singular, smaller parts of games. So I didn't really right. differentiate the two. Okay. But my top three um, really very clearly, the first two influenced by uh, my history with collectible card games. Okay. Because the first one, I like uh, like card-driven play. Right. Uh, second would be drafting, and then finally tiling. I really like tiling. Ooh, drafting is good. Yeah. I didn't have that. And on actually, the I do have a fourth. A runner-up would be engine building. Okay. So what? Are, what are your four? You have? Um, I went in a little bit of a different direction. I think I went a little bit more specific. Okay. Um, so kind of the one that number number three and four are so close. Um, I really like hit on a roll mechanisms, which is what I'm define that by is like axis and allies where you either hit on a roll over or under something. And really, I think it allows uh, different units or characters to have a clearly uh, different power. I don't think it's used so much for characters, but definitely units. You know, roll roll three or higher, this happens, or two or less, this happens. Yeah. Um, it just distinctly in my mind makes the power level of a of a unit. I mean, I think to the fighters in Twilight Imperium Four, you know, they can only hit on a roll. I think of one or 
or two or less. It's one of those things. Yeah, it's like nine or higher, I think, on a D. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one actually goes higher. Yes. So yeah, yeah. then, but then again, you know, they're cheap and you can pump them out. Right. And so you're you're playing the odds, but Absolutely. playing the numbers. Yeah. And, well, I, think and that, I, I, I honestly think, depending on how the tax you take and the up, some of those upgraded chips, like the best you can get is like a six or higher. Oh, yeah. Like it's not the, 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 they're not very good odds, really, when you... Especially when you like compare it to other games like that are on a D6 system, where you could get a hit of one through five. Like anything but a six is a is a hit, right? There's yeah, a- that's crazy. So that and the next one I have is hidden movement. Okay. Um, I, oh, that's a great. Yeah, fuck. That's that's top five for me. Yes, that's hidden movement. I love hidden movement. Oh, I just think it adds so much suspense to it's the game. It's so much tension. So much yeah. tension, and I think it's really underutilized. I think there's Okay, go with horror slasher themed board games. I mean, I don't know how many exist, but I think Hidden Movement would be an awesome integral part of those. They do have a Friday the 13th. I don't think it's the Friday the 13th IP, but it is literally you're like at a camp and it's Hidden Movement. And, you know, one player plays the slasher and it's got like two different uh, two different um, acts to it. So, you know, like. As in, if you're watching a movie, the power level of the slasher in Act 1 is way ramping up. And then as the characters are finally are realizing that this shit has happened to them and they're starting to fight back and his power kind of go, wanes and the nice. shifts go. Nice. So, yeah, no, totally agree. Hidden Womb is a great one. Um, Number two is I just like wild cards. Cards that, um, whether it's like gold in splendor, you know, <laughs> okay. or, you know, wild cards. I hate to pull this crappy camping game out, but... Uno, the wild cards in there. Any card that will allow me to bridge with a resource I don't have or make one kind of risky leap to try something yeah, because I don't have that resource. Um, And one thing I wanted to mention is I even extend that mechanic to like Catan where you can always trade four of one resource for for a wild card or on a port three of one. And I... I just really like a mechanic like that that allows you to either risk or self-sacrifice for that key missing ingredient. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, more more generally, that's kind of luck mitigation. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, in luck mitigation, in a sense, is what my number one is. Okay. I love modifiers to dies. Yeah. I've loved it yeah. since the first time I played D&D 4th uh, edition. Maddie, remember your mods. Um, <laughs> I love the idea that through like finding a powerful item or, you know, working hard to min max that you can really reduce luck yeah. when you're rolling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it shows particularly in dungeon crawlers and RPGs. Um, but there's die modifiers in lots of games. There is, yeah, yeah. And I just think it's... Uh, it's a mechanism that just feels right. For well, and and now um, I think personally, I think at the the state of the the hobby, that to to a larger sect than you would maybe think previous would have the same mindset that randomness is a negative factor mm, in a yeah. lot of a lot of especially in a particular style of game as well. Now I now actually. I mean, we've had on the burner kind of um, a discussion topic of, of randomness randomness versus chance kind of th- segment, right. which would be interesting to talk about maybe. 
but I am I'm I'm okay. I'm totally a fan with randomness. I I mean randomness can sometimes give you the best moments in in games. I mean ex- even dr- exactly right back to D and mean <laughs> if you're trying to do something epic and crazy and you critically fail like that can make a better story than had you succeeded sometimes yeah absolutely i do agree with that but but i i always need a way to mitigate that randomness because i don't want to be beholden to it the entire time well or there's a feeling of no progression in the type of games where it's in absolutely and it's like why the fuck am i spending money on this item or or wearing this or using this to fight with it's not doing anything right right absolutely Absolutely. That's a good list. That's a good list. Yeah. Well, I guess we gave, you know, some specific examples there. Uh, but if you have any specific examples where you really... Well, yeah. I mean, for, for like, uh, card-driven play, I'm, the first thing that came to mind was Transatlantic. That's... Yeah. That literally... The whole... The entire game. I mean, that, and um, Terraforming Mars is the same. Twilight Struggle is... Literally, that's what the game is, right? Yeah. I don't know. I just... Something about that. I mean, especially... I mean, a long-standing listener will know that I... If Transatlantic had a dick, I would suck it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I'd love that game. Um, but I love in that game in particular is like you you can upgrade those card actions. You right. get better card actions. And, you know, you, you eventually get to the point where you have so many that you're not – you don't have to play out your entire hand of available actions before you're able to recoup them. Exactly. Um, I just really like that, and like everyone loves Terraforming Mars. Terraforming Mars is is a is a, a an excellent game, well worth the accolades that it receives, in my opinion. I think you would love that one. I know we haven't played that one. That yeah. one you can also play with drafting. It has both of these actually, but but like like in Transatlantic, you know, Terraforming Mars has this big old stack of cards that you you can uh, draft at the beginning of every round, and then you play. And you pay for the cards and, you know, they either build stuff or they do other actions for you. And that's the whole game. And yeah. through it, you're terraforming Mars. I mean, there's a reason that that game, I think, I think that just appeals to or can appeal to a broad audience. Because I, I think it's very simple. There's something very simplistic in it where you literally, okay, here's, here's your starting deck of six cards. These are all the things that you can do. It's all very clearly laid out on the cards. Um, you know, obviously maybe additional explanation in relation to the board and some spots on the board could be, would be needed, but I think it is something that is very digestible. I don't know. Digestible. Yeah. No, that's good. But on the flip side to that for drafting, I think drafting is something that, uh, can, can be very intimidating. Yes. A lot goes into a draft. Even if it's a small part of the game, a lot can go into a draft. I, I I would argue that the, the tough part about drafting is that I think it's a mechanism where you really need to understand the game to do well at it. Oh, 100 yes, You need to agreed. play it a few times. Drafting isn't about necessarily about the, you know, the cards that you're drafting on the table. It's also about what cards could come up next. Right. And where are you going to go with your overall plan? You know, and that's the thing why you hate magic drafts, don't you? Or I... I no, I like magic drafts. I'm just shit at them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just terrible at them, and I end up with a shitty deck because I'm terrible at drafting. I guess I, I hate what you choose to be. <laughs> yeah, but magic. Draft. But I like the draft. You, you like I, I like I, I like all the the layers of thinking that go into it. Right. That that you can put into it. You know, you don't necessarily have to. I mean, you could literally just 
get a new hand and the fun could be in just dealing with the the new hand the newest hand you've been given and right not really paying much mind to what you've already taken or what you've already seen right um i don't know i just but but they can be really daunting for sure yeah another thing i just want to point out about drafting particularly when it's cards is strategic drafting mm-hmm. so you may not be building your game a certain way but holy shit, do you want to leave this card out for someone else absolutely, to take? Absolutely, yeah. You, you right? hate draft like crazy, right? You, that's you hate important. draft. Yeah. And, you know, we say the term is hate draft because that's what it's called, but it's kind of a legit strategy. I mean, you can't it's leave a, I something think it's huge nece- on the table. In a lot of games, it's necessary. Yeah. And it's not... It's A lot of people, like, I think they, the term hate drafting rises from the denial in it, right? Right. Um, because... Most of the time when you're drafting, you were drafting to give yourself a benefit. Right. Whereas when you hate draft, you are – it's too de- – too. It's, it's <clears throat> denial. Area denial. Yeah, absolutely. Player denial. Or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Some in the, in, like in the case you pointed out, it's not necessarily directed at a single player. But a lot of the time, depending on the type of draft and whether or not it's, it's an open draft or depending on how far into the game you are, like Terraforming Mars – um, it is a, an, a, an alternate rule that you can play at the beginning of the game. Everyone gets a fresh hand of cards that they can purchase to be able to use. Now, you can either play just randomly handing out those cards off the top of the deck, or you can play, you can draft them amongst all the players. Right. Instead right. of to, to get rid of the randomness, right? So, you know, four or five rounds into that game, I, you get a hand of cards where you're seeing another player is utilizing the specific strategy then that's kind of where it could it's targeted hate drafting right right now that player would probably never know unless they're unless you end up using that card for yourself and you're like yeah i knew you could use this but luckily i started with it in my hand, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but i i think there are ups and downs to drafting though because that hate drafting if everyone is not doing it then a lot of the times your hate drafting is ineffective and can hurt you because if you're the only one worried about denying people some things and no one else is. They're picking up what they actually need. Exactly. And they're building because an effective force. You know, potentially two or three other players that are giving a specific player whatever you can't. Like if you have a hand with three good things yeah. and it's got to pass four times down the, down the line. Well, you can only deny one of those three things. Right. Right. And then so – that's why I think it's, uh, drafting is, is a lot, uh, way more nuanced than I, I think than it appears yeah. on the surface. Yeah. It's like, you know, gas or break. Gas or break. Yeah, exactly. That. So that's, exactly. But you know what? That's part of the strategy and that's part of the fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess we kind of tiptoed into what, what makes a great mechanic. And what I have written down is essentially what we were talking about. It, it lessens luck and lets skill and knowledge of the game shine through a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And... It's, you know, another important point I had is that for me, a great mechanic is not a one and done random event. It's not a flash in the pan. Um, I guess a wild card is kind of like that. Um, But the ones I really like are the ones that affect the rest of the game or at least the game on a long term until someone counters it. Right. Right. So, well, I think in to 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 support you on the, the wild thing that is not necessarily a flash in the pan if the decision and um, the way you a- acquire that wild also requires you to sacrifice something. Because, mm. you know, um, 
very uh, beginner um, gateway game, Ticket to Ride, there are where you're just collecting a bunch of uh, colored train cards to be able to lay track on specifically colored sections of the map, there are wild cards in it. And if you were to take a wild card that is, you know, from this uh, open display that everyone chooses cards from, if you were to take the wild, you only get one card, whereas if you choose other wilds, you can, you take two. Oh. So, you know, just kind of that give and take for the for the utility of the wild, but you are sacrificing possibly additional actions and action economy. Sorry, because I never played the game. You said, you, you actually said, if you don't take the wild and take two other wilds, did you mean No, colored? no, so, sorry, yeah, two other cards. Okay. If you don't take the wild, you can take two other colored cards. Oh, okay, colored so like cards. Yeah. Okay, okay. I Absolutely. also didn't know if there were other wild cards. No, there's just, thing. yeah, okay, no, no, that's no, fine, that's fine. I also think a great mechanic is really good when it's related to the theme of the game. Yeah. Uh, well, that, I think through the mechanisms, that's where theme can really shine on a otherwise right. dry type of game. Well, you know, and I love the idea that uh, I told you about that new dragon in Magic the Gathering that, you know, creates kobold like million yeah, minions yeah. and then like eats eat. them like yeah. popcorn to pump himself up. Yeah, yeah. And that's like a dragon thing to do. Totally. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. Well, you know? I think um, I think I mean, Magic the Gathering is the epitome of where mechanics and flavor meet. Right. A lot of the time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you could go down List and list because, you know, my opinion of the games I played, nobody does it better than Magic because I don't think Magic would survive this long. Yeah, if they weren't doing it. If they, if they weren't, weren't doing it yeah, and didn't do it in a good it. way. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, whether it's it's dragons or samurai or bears or everything, like they're so full of themes and, and yeah. distinct mechanics. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, what, in your opinion, makes a great mechanic? I like uh, I like mechanisms. Me- oh, sorry, mechanisms. <laughs> I like mechanisms that just um, that just like force me to make interesting decisions. Like um, again, the the I mean, yeah, drafting, but like even even tile laying. I just and that is one of the of course the this broad mechanism of a game. If a game is a tile layer, then that's going to be predominantly what you're doing in the game, right? Now, obviously, a game can have tiling aspects. Mm, kind of, I guess, transatlantic. Yeah, transatlantic. Just beating up transatlantic. <laughs> it has it has tiling aspects in a very loose form. Is where you are you're deploying your ships to the seas on the board to get the blue ribbon. Blue oh, the ribbon. blue ribbon. Can yeah. I just play transatlantic, please? Let's do it. Um, Take care, listener. <laughs> thanks, listener. So. Uh, I don't know, like like when when okay, my my favorite tiling game is Suburbia, and every tile that you lay into your city interacts with adjacent tiles. So that's that's where all the decision making comes in, right? You are trying to one buy specific tiles that fit into your city and gel with the rest of the tiles that you've already put down, right? To 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 make again, it's making the the it's it's increasing the the worth of your action economy i don't know i just i like it (laughs) i like it well and then even like in engine building that's that's all engine building is 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 making your actions worth so much more and eventually you get to a point where you can run your engine and you can just do everything i know and it's a great feeling really get your engine to that it absolutely is. it's very satisfying and 
You know, I liked what you said about, um, I'm trying to put it into words. I was going to connect it with, with, uh, Twilight Imperium 4, how, you know, half the time you're barking at other people on the table in the action phase where you pick what action you'll have yeah. to play. You're barking at other people for leaving an action on the table yeah. that you wanted them to play right. so you could do it as well. Yeah. You know, and it's it's just that that kind of decision making that there's no no perfect decision to make sometimes. It's yeah. like, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I need it. But so. you make the the best of the worst, right? You make the best of the worst. Um, it's like this podcast. Yeah, the best <laughs> of the worst. Coming to you once a month from Canada. Now, this was kind of, you know, just a off-the-cuff one, and, and I don't know if you have any thoughts, but what mechanics will we add to existing games? Like, did you think of any games that could use a certain mechanic to make them better? Um, I didn't really have anything specific. I, I did actually have a transatlantic one, which is... What? I know. Even I'm beaten off to now. It's Bukaki. Translated Bukaki. I wish there was a way to steal someone's ship somehow. I just like a hostile hmm. takeover. Okay. I think it needed to be rare. Boat? Yeah. Rare. Like I was going to go with like a business hostile takeover of the ship or something. Or like ships had a maintenance cost that. You can't really put a ship back in the flow of ships because that's how the game ends. That's right. how the game goes. But I just I just wish there was a way to do that. I wished, and I didn't actually think of a specific mechanic for it, but so in sight that you could make it more attractive to actually attack someone else. Yeah. I think there should be a mechanic for that. Um, okay. And you can correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't played most of the expansions, but it would have been great in Settlers of Catan if you could fight each other somehow or destroy each other's cities or Mm -hmm. roads Mm -hmm. but it's such like a positive rated g game that you can't do that (laughs) i guess it kind of is right when you think about it so so those were kind of the the main mechanics i had i was gonna bring up the fact that even though we only ever played it once it was like that old airplane the spruce goose that only flew seven feet off of water one time with howard hughes in it was uh how i went through the trouble of creating Mobiasco, which were additional card mechanics to add to the game Fiasco, that I went to the extent of actually doing my own art and getting it printed by a company on actual card stock yeah. just to have that. And it was hit or miss, but I like the idea of it, of actually adding... Actually, that's interesting because that's a mechanic that adds an element of randomness into a game that has very little randomness when you think about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, actually, um, Bully Pit just had a, a Kickstarter for another edition of Fiasco that came with a bunch of add-on stuff. I don't know exactly what Ooh, was in boy. it. I know but, where I'm logging on when I get home. Um, oh, man, I wonder if it's still running. I should have pledged it. Uh, I think it was fairly cheap. You should check, though, and see if it's still, I will, still I going. I will check. And I didn't, I didn't really look into it, but it sounds like something very similar, like adding different types of aspects. Oh, you know what it was? Now, I am remembering because um, it, I think it, it basically streamlined everything. It kind of took away that book and put everything onto like card form and made it um, a little more accessible, I think. So, I don't know. If you're in the market for a copy of Fiasco. Yeah, that is actually pretty cool. Um, I wanted to end with a, a statement from our 
uh, former guest Super Geek, mm-hmm. one of our early guests on mechanics, because he actually was a uh, actual board game mechanic designer. And so what he said, I asked him about mechanics and what he liked about them. He said, he said he likes mechanics that have an immediate impact on the game state. I prefer game mechanics that introduce more analytical things than random or RNG. Code Names has a fantastic mechanic where players give a one-word clue to their team, and the rest of the team has to base their strategy off that one-word clue. Tons of strategy, very analytical, but it can also be a bit random, which gives it terrific replayability. For a more nerdy game with those sorts of mechanics, 18xx, and in particular 1860, has very little RNG, but it's the options and analytics that keep you coming back. So I don't notice some of the games he's bringing up, but, uh, you know, I just want to get a two cents in from a guy who's actually in the industry. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, super valid about uh, code names. And I definitely agree with the the analytical uh, comments there. Um, Fully on board with it. Like I said, I mean, I don't mind randomness. I would prefer not to have the randomness. But as long as there's a way to mitigate it, randomness is tolerable for me right and i'm with you i i like randomness in games i mean you need it and you need the ability for someone to come back and not just be beat down the whole game or else it's no fun and i think well okay you're gonna you're gonna take me on on that no i don't think a game necessarily needs a catch-up mechanic but it also depends on what kind of game you're playing Okay. I mean, again, there's a lot there's a lot of caveats and a lot of context that isn't there on this general statement right. that you're throwing out there. Like Randy mentions 18xx games. Yeah, zero randomness in those games. That's solely about um, positioning positioning your 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 companies um, on stock tracks and on the physical board laying uh, tracks strategically and setting yourself up for future rounds. And potentially blocking other players from utilizing these tracks that you're laying down by, you know, dropping stations down and blocking them. So, I mean, I've only played 1846 uh, a a couple of times, but I quite enjoy myself in 18xx (laughs) game. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, Super Geek is coming from a point where uh, he's very competitive at games and he... He hates when when there's a catch-up mechanic and hates when right, someone can just... because it's taking out that competitive... It's taking out his good work exactly. in setting himself right. up. So I totally understand and, him there. And uh, on the flip side, he, his good work could just easily be ruined by the same randomness. Right. Not, not even necessarily giving another player a benefit, but right. just something... something and tips. that's deflating because we've all played it games is. where that's happened. That's yeah. deflating. Um, well, let's move on. Sure. And it's time for movie musings. Okay, here we go. YouTube antitrust. Who boy. Um, yeah, this I've, has been one of, uh, kind of a lot. I mean, we've touched on troubles with YouTube actually quite a bit in the past handful of, of, it, of episodes. This has a, been a slow boiling chowder. I've already introduced you <laughs> right. in this episode. You got a chow down now. And I've referenced soup, so now we have to go to chowder to introduce all the semi-liquid forms of sustenance. Um, <laughs> but okay, so here's the thing. This is never something I would have brought up when Marty was still alive, because uh, <laughs> YouTube is something that 
you and I are very heavy consumers of. Yeah. We both have YouTube Red, which turned into YouTube Premium. And we both mentioned we were driving uh, back in the car last week from visiting uh, Marty's grave. And <laughs> and we were talking about... His, widow, his poor, poor widowed wife. Yeah, I know. She's she's pretty sad now that she's with listener Mike. Um, <laughs> so oh, that gave me a shudder to think about <laughs> Gave me shutters too, right at the grave. I started weeping. <laughs> um, but we talked about that, about how were the how uh, YouTube uh, Premium would be actually one of the last streaming services we would give up. Yeah, because we consume so much of it. As much as I, I do legitimately hate to say that though. Like I don't, I don't want to give Google any money. <laughs> I just, I just don't. I don't. I don't know. But you know what? I mean, I know you see it that way. Well, I mean, actually, you know what? You're actually talking about kind of exactly what we're going into because our favorite content creators are increasingly being cut out of their share of that revenue stream, right? which comes from ads. Now, we don't see them, but there, there is an algorithm so that by us being premium pairs that they still get a little little bit of money from us viewing them. Um, so, so did you look into exactly how that works? So, is it basically as if we had watched with the ad? Is that just, yes? Okay, that is. I think it's wow, as if we then we're watched ripped off, and I think it's as if because the click is important. It's as if it had like five ads, as if we clicked once. It's that kind of thing. At least clicked once. Okay. So, because they know we're we're heavy consumers. So potentially, though, the creators are getting shortchanged. Yes. With yes. Our, with our premium. Yes, they are. Yeah. Well, I think they're being shortchanged in a lot of ways. So, I mean, it's kind of the the old cliche, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So basically, I've done some research into it. Yep. And there were uh, like two, they call them adpocalypses. Adpocalypses, yes. Well, apparently, actually, they're up to four now. They're up to four. Yep. shit. <laughs> but the first two were, I think, more major. And the third and fourth. Well, the fourth one they're calling the Vox Sad Apocalypse, and it has to do with a lot of um, a lot of more conservative political channels getting deplatformed. Right, and uh, yeah, people complaining about them, and then YouTube, because it is a detractor for advertisers, YouTube just deleting their channels. Oh wow! Yeah, that's pisses me off. A bunch of a bunch of shit that, I mean, it's kind of relevant to this topic, but it is a lot of political. Oh, that is so annoying. Rhetoric. Why can't people just listen to each other, even if they don't disagree, or even if they don't agree? Well, and you know what's funny? Again, we're kind of tangenting, but like YouTube, that's how the YouTube algorithm works. It recommends videos to you that you will disagree with. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the time. So it is, it is weird that way. I'm not sure what that what the logic behind that is. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I could be wrong here, like, with years by year or two or whatever. I, I was really doing this sleep-deprived. But it appears that uh, in 2017, after there was a London Times article about uh, big company ads on YouTube being tied to hate speech, like real yeah. hate speech, yeah. terrorists, terrorism and stuff like that. and so Like become, violence inciting. Yeah, exactly. The stuff that most rational beings can agree is actually legit hate speech. Right. So it was at that point where YouTube made, honestly, the biggest decision, which is to stop randomizing where ads go. Yeah. And so based off that, it it was advertisers who were complaining based off this. They're saying, I don't want to, you know, have my my ad for like, you know, body wash tied to some terrorist hate speech or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so 
I, you know, I, when I thought about it, it's kind of weird because it's like, how does that actually reflect bad on the brand? Like, don't people know that it's just a random ad inserted there? I, I don't know. I don't Anyways, know. It's, thing. it's, it's, it's being seen by people who would seek out these hate speech videos. Like, these people aren't the brightest fucking people no. in the world. And they're not going to be like, wow, you know, body wash by, you know, I, I don't want to mention a real brand name, so I'll, I'll say neck and shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Wow. I, I really want to, you know, douse myself in this and write about it before I blow myself up. You know, it's like, no. And there's no real connection to make there. But anyways, that's what stopped the randomization and introduced the first algorithms. However, in the second adpocalypse, and this is the only second I know about, that had to do with um, something actually my brother brought up, which was these kind of really this like almost I don't want to say hidden, but like subculture of YouTube videos that were kind of really pervy to do with kids. Yeah. Like just shooting kids in extremely sexualized situations. Well, well, and it um, actually this has more to do with the third apocalypse a lot. Uh, Well, I think it re resurged a little bit. But there's apparently there's like a whole there's like a, a YouTube kids and it's just a bunch of um, child friendly uh, channels. So like you know instead of throwing on cartoons for your child while you're getting ready in the morning, you you log into YouTube and put on a YouTube video for them to watch. Um, a lot of child creators uh, as well. There's actually one kids channel that's like one of the highest grossing YouTube channels. The kid just opens up packages of toys. Wow, and he's made like makes over a hundred million dollars a year with his channel. <laughs> wow, like it's nuts. I would do. It's I would open nuts. toys for fifty million a year. I, I would. would open. If, I would open up toys once a week for like a thousand dollars a month. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. But anyway, so I guess you know, like um, parents or kids uploading videos of um, like doing like gymnastic routines or like outside playing. Like these these pedophiles would look at these videos, these harmless videos, and timestamp for other pedophiles in the comments where they could stop the video and it would be centered on you know strange positions of like. Disgust, like disgusting shit. Yeah, yeah. And basically, what they had figured out is that the algorithms were absolutely doing absolutely nothing to de-add that stuff because how would it know? I mean, it's it's such a pervy kind of way around to even get to those scenes. Yeah. And because the videos themselves ostensibly don't, you know, have really anything wrong with them. Well, um, actually, I'm um, sorry. I think I. No, that's I okay, did. No, I, I did interrupt you and jump all over your part because I was talking about the third adpocalypse, but okay. you talking about the second one is um, actually is related, like you said, to creators making content that is inappropriate. Right, right. Very specifically, there's this channel called Toy Freaks. It's like um, a, a a guy and his two daughters, and it's just like it's it's just like was apparently weird content, like. They just doing strange stuff. Like I don't, I don't even example. Like I don't, even, I don't even want to give examples. But like some videos, like depicted like the kids like vomiting and like like when they were like actually in pain. Like really, just weird. That is weird stuff. That like strange. Why? 
weird shit. And then that, you know, so YouTube finally deleted this Toy Freaks account and played into a lot of the second adpocalypse stuff that you are talking about. Well, can you jump into, because that's basically what I was going to say about the adpocalypse. Can you jump into the fourth adpocalypse or was that the Vox one that you mentioned? The fourth one apparently is this Vox one. Okay. Which, um... Very recently, like May of 2019, all of this stuff comes up as a Vox reporter was, you know, contacting YouTube and demanding demonetization on specifically Stephen Crowder's YouTube channel. Wow. And Stephen Crowder is the change my mind dude, right? That's Mm -hmm. who Stephen. Yeah. So Stephen Crowder is very, very vocal in his views. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um. I guess he's a. I've never watched any of those videos. He's a conser- He's more conservative. He's a conservative leaning. Yeah, he's a conservative cop. leading. He's he's a comedian. So right. He's a very acid tongued comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. yes, he's conservative right. leading. So that's apparently the or you know vod adpocalypse or adpocalypse two point people are calling it. Um, but tying into the nearly around the, the second adpocalypse, a lot of it. Well, a lot of creators get you know quote unquote blamed. For also being part and just doing and saying stupid shit on their channels. I mean, famously PewDiePie um, showing, you know, Nazi symbolism and, and, and spouting. I think it was uh, anti-Semitic stuff. Yeah, anti-Semitic epithets. And um, Logan Paul posted a video in the the famous uh, suicide forest in Japan with uh, the, the dead body of someone who had... A, by all accounts, recently committed suicide in said forest. Like, dumb shit, these people. And these are their most popular. And that's the thing. So that's also part of, in 2018, they changed a lot of the um, their two of the um, their programs, right? Because mm-hmm. you look get into that in some of your research? Um, well, what I got research is, is how you get monetized now, which is something. Yeah, there's that. Into. So there's like the YouTube's partner program, which is like basically, I think, any monetized channel, right? Yeah, and I have some comments on that. So mm-hmm. if you're talking a little bit more related to to the – I'll just let you continue. And just well, okay. but And like I'm sure you have like um, – so now to, to get your channel monetized, as, as uh, I assume this is current stuff I've found, you need okay. um, a thousand or more subscribers. Yes, I do have that. And yes. 4,000 total hours at least of right. watch time in the past 12 months. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which is much harder to get than the former – 10,000 hours total accrued. Lifetime Lifetime. Views. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that makes it more difficult. And I think it honestly risks worse videos because people have to be increasingly sensationalistic uh, to bring back so much viewers within that certain time right. frame. Right. Now – Well, my- they, they say a, a, a well-crafted thumbnail and title is what can get you the views. It doesn't matter the content on your video. No. And – I think we've all been caught in oh, yeah. thumbnails that sound really Absolutely. cool, and it's absolute bullshit. Yeah, or and it's off garbage. From someone else, it's and garbage. I hate that. I hate that, and I hate seeing like fifty thousand s- other people being. There's some, but you know, the worst offenders are um, like the uh, like those, those movie the movie channels. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fuck, I hate those. Oh, it's what's like the, what's the specific? Got to see this uh, Star Wars nine fully revealed. That yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. It's you know, ludicrous. Ray's lineage right here and. You should know that nobody fucking knows that, but you still click. I know you're, uh, you really, uh, you shouldn't fall for it, but you fucking do. So 
there's other issues that go, and, and we can backtrack here too, but there, there's other demonetizing issues that are related to YouTube basically trying to program and reprogram these these um, uh, algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I wish I had written it down so I had the street credit of telling you who it was, but in my research, it came up with someone who had a popular uh, video of theirs from a few years ago, like demonetized and really fucked over their channel because their cell phone rang for three hours or sorry three hours like three seconds in the background with like copyrighted music uh, and somehow they YouTube had their whole channel up. demonetized for that yes temporarily and then the video was permanently demonetized. oh because that's that's their punishment punishment for this violation for this three a temporary it's like demonetization is there any w- wiggle room to know that it was like three seconds of ringtone like really there isn't so if your channel gets if your channel gets large enough then your channel will constantly get flagged for copyright violations no matter how by the book you are as far as fair use laws go or 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 if it's a second if it's four seconds whatever if it's four minutes obviously that's different but yeah i think if you if you garner enough attention then you attract (laughs) instead of bots it's literally like manual detection because right. when you look at those violations on your page, you can see it tells you whether or not it was a program that caught it or if it was somebody actually a person watching your video and scrubbing through it and looking for it, right. which is interesting. And um, yeah, a lot of the times your, your individual video will get banned or in extreme cases, yeah, temporary demonetization or permanent demonetization. Right. Right. Or your and, entire channel just gets deleted. And, and a big problem with the algorithms that that is occurring is that people who commentate on on uh, sensitive issues are being flagged like right alongside the actual yeah. issue. So there's like keywords, you, keywords, right? Like if, them. if you want to have a university professor on and discuss terrorism in the Middle East, that video is going to be flagged yep. and demonetized. 100%. Even if it has... Like no hate speech or no like bad ringtones right. from some music company, they're gonna demonetize it. So now you essentially can't be a commentator and make money. And right. it's you know it's it's crazy. Well, it's taking it's also it takes away YouTube as a platform for like these intellectual types, right? right? I mean, you don't you don't obviously uh, because it's, it is so widely accessible and easily utilize that you do get fucking weirdos right and people that do just want to try to make a buck and be as since purposefully as sensational and ludicrously out out to fucking lunch as possible obviously but right there are like legitimate academics right that can utilize youtube to garner an audience and and you know reach more than just the two people in their lecture hall <laughs> Or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, for like-minded individuals to express free speech. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because YouTube once was a bastion of free speech. Yeah. I think it's safe to say. Um, you know, low-level content creators, not a lot of technology could, could spell what they wanted. But now as they're becoming like the this like Gestapo force against anything that might, you know, tick off any advertiser or Vox... They're becoming very anti-free speech. And, you know, this was all expired. This was all inspired by uh, Drakinafel, 
who is a warships guy. He's my favorite content creator. And, you know, he just has been railing or raging because he gets his support through Patreon. He doesn't want to give up his day job anyways. He loves it. But he makes these videos and he was forcibly monetized. He he said no the first time and then they forced him to monetize. But what really pissed him off is they started demonetizing his videos and they're not telling him why. And they're basically like insulting him for growing to a point where they forcibly monetize him, then take it away without explanation. It's like, what are you doing? That's so like weird. Like you're biting the hand that well, feeds Well, that's you. the other thing is it's it's on a whim apparently uh, and Twitch is the same way with their enforcement of their regulations. It's on a whim on whether or not YouTube is enforcing a particular violation or non-violation of whatever regulation they deem you to have violated on, on any given day is also the problem. Like these, right. the, 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 guy, the uh, what do they call them? Um, guidelines that they put out and that you agree to, they don't hold you to properly. It's right. I don't know. Right. You know, and I think that's where programs like Patreon have bailed out some creators. Um, yeah. It doesn't help at all the small creators. They're, they're fucked right now. But the mid-sized uh, creators, they can get enough Patreons that, you know, they can survive YouTube demonetizing videos. They'll still make enough to pay for their equipment or whatnot. I'm sure it's l much less. Maybe they won't get a full-time job out of it, but they can at least have a revenue stream. But the issue with ads is kind of what leads into my final point that I had for this. I asked the question, do we need an alternative to YouTube and how can one form? Well, yes. We, to the yes. First, to the former, uh, yes. But here's the problem. So how can one form? I think it essentially has to be a premium subscription service that you pay, you know, eight bucks a month for, six bucks, whatever it is. Everybody pays and there are no ads. Because I think the moment you were to add ads to another website, sooner or later, money talks those advertisers are going to do the same thing that they did to YouTube. And no matter how much you said you're a free speech person, when this is your bread and butter, your livelihood, this new tube you, <laughs> whatever, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I see you, whatever you want to call this service, um, you're going to listen to where your money's at. Yeah. And well, um, a similar thing right now is happening with Twitch. God, what's the name of this? It's like a rival program. It's like called Hype or something. And they recently brokered a contract with a very well-known Twitch streamer who is now exclusively streaming with them. Hmm. Very much like the Epic Games Store and Steam stuff, right? It's a similar thing. Like, you have to have something to attract people to you. Right. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. So how would paying out with this paid subscription, it would be like a percentage based on... Yeah, you would, you would have to get... Uh... You know, you would maybe get a some sort of cut. I can't make up the economics. Sure, for that, but yeah. but my point would be it can't be ad supported. Um, I think that ad supporting will inevitably lead down the path that YouTube was was under because ten years ago, I think you could say that YouTube was pretty staunchly pro yeah. pro free speech, and you look at it now, it's not. And they're saying they're just eliminating hate, but like, look at what they're actually doing look at the actual results of what they're doing well it's and obviously if uh, all of their 
attempts to course correct it just feels like it's a it's a carpet bomb instead of a, a specific strike right right exactly um exactly there's a ton of collateral damage oh yeah, yeah. huge collateral damage well and um just to, to back up a little bit um there's also another thing they have called their google preferred oh yes content creators yes. which is like i guess like literally like the top tier as far right. as channel it's, size it's a higher level of ad it revenue is. Yeah, for yeah. these people yeah so youtube just uses it to sell advertisers on this top five percent of all creators on their their site right and that's how they garner or, or they they attract them just you know here's our site so i was going to hit this this key demo 18 to 34 demo and give us your money <laughs> yeah but in so now that's also part of that 2018 they changed with the partner program in addition they changed the um the criteria to be able to be a google preferred channel as google preferred channels now need to be what they call family friendly uh, i don't know exactly what that criteria looks like but um, they've tightened up the regulations and to be able to be accepted as one like Every video of a channel that's trying to uh, applying to be a Google preferred ha- ha- will be manually viewed by somebody. Right. And I know one of the things is like no profanity because I've seen a lot of yeah. YouTubers joke about that um, and they'll like drop an F-bomb like I'm not editing this out yeah. and this means this, this is, is getting demonetized. demonetized. I've seen that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One yeah. YouTube would demonetize the fuck out of us, I guess. Yeah, I would uh, paraphrase Han Solo when I talk about, or no, it was Luke Skywalker when I talk about us here. If there is a planet where a podcast would be monetized, the T Hud podcast is the planet furthest from. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that fucking right? Oh, listener? that's funny. That's funny. Well, uh, you know, that's that's all I got, and I wish I. I felt like I need to come up with some sort of ethical statement like, you know, listener, give up YouTube. Let's let's form a new tube or something like that. But at the end of the day, in the short term, I don't know what other option there is because my content creators are there. I will follow them. I wish a new platform got me that they would migrate to. I would follow. So do you think, let's say like the top 10 creators that you follow, you think that they are large enough and have a large enough fan base uh or maybe i should put this the other way do you think their fan base is small enough where it would be more worthwhile for them to switch platforms to 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 one i mean have to rebuild that fan base but also that they off their current youtube fan base they are not really generating enough to be worth it for the ones I watch, I would say in general, yes, because I know for a fact that out of um, the top five channels I watch, four of them have severe demonetization issues. One of them doesn't. One of them's rated G and gets you know lots of ad revenue, and this yeah. guy even says it. But four of the five have major issues with it. Or basically just rely on their Patreon now. They don't even give a fuck. And they actually say sometimes, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. yeah, yeah. About YouTube monetization. How do you feel about... uh, Because I watch a few creators that they get... They're like sponsored 
And so therefore they give a little plug for a product of, or a company that is giving them money to give them the plug. Right. How do you feel about that? Because that's, those are technically ads that despite paying this premium YouTube premium price, you are still getting ads. Okay. You know what? Um, I actually watch one of my, I should maybe said top six channels because a channel I didn't think of, which I watch a lot is called biographics and um, i mentioned it before but it's actually gets monetization from both youtube and from sponsorship okay now i know for a fact that their sponsorship is unaffected by views like they have sponsors they have several sponsors they basically have to rotate them they've got sponsors lining up but this channel the producer who's not the actual host bitches on like the discussion thread whenever a video they make because they make one daily drops from the average views and he gets really cranky and passive aggressive he's like this is our livelihood youtube views are our livelihood he's like you know what you guys want to be sarcastic that's fine i have to put food on my table and that's how <sighs> he talks and so you think if he was you see right there that he can be sponsored and it's like secure and they can do whatever they want make whatever videos they want and not really care how the views fluctuate and then you see that they also get revenue from these views and they turn into these like cranky Oscar the Grouches right. and views fall a little bit. So in my mind, if they stop bitching, I, I don't care if there's an ad. I actually, there's right. um from the guy who I said was rated G who also has sponsors in YouTube monetization. He's called the history guy. Uh, he always pushes uh, as a sponsorship Magellan TV, which is um, a new streaming service just for documentaries. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I bought it and I got the trial and I'm still <laughs> paying for it. And I may, I may quit it at some point, but I actually really support what that streaming service is trying to do. Mm-hmm. So there's a sponsorship win. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So YouTube continues on this trajectory of theirs and they are unable to course correct to something more feasible and suitable for their creators. Does that open up a window for more advertisers to directly contact the creators and may turn into a boon for those creators as they get more yes. stable ad income. Yes. And then the question becomes, I hate to say it, but does YouTube start cracking down on that circumventation? Right. Right they now start... they seem to tolerate it right. as far as I've heard. Yeah. But I yeah, can easily actually. see them circumvent. Oh yeah. Uh, I could, I could absolutely and, see and that. try to crack down. Flagging, flagging videos for, for an ad quote unquote inappropriate content or whatever they, they would tweak their regulations. So it would become inappropriate content. YouTube ads only. You want to be on YouTube. You, you don't have any other advertising. It's a private company. They could easily enact that. They'd be dicks for doing it and they'd right. lose a lot of You'd have a lot of angry people. I think you'd even get a boycott out of that, but they could do it. How many um, would you say of your the creators that you watch um, do the YouTube stuff full time? I mean, maybe uh, supplemented, obviously, by the one, Patreon. One, two. These two don't. This guy I'm not sure about. And hmm. so, I mean, that's four, four out of six do it full time. Right. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a that's a large ratio, yeah. and I want yeah. I mean, obviously, there's no way for us to really know, but we could speculate on whether or not uh, whether or not they would still survive professionally doing doing that professionally 
should YouTube crack down on those additional sponsorships. Right. You know, where the future might lie is kind of like that guy you mentioned who signed an exclusivity contract. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of my favorite computer games, of course, World of Warships, it's uh, made by Wargaming. They actually run like three similar franchises and a few similar ones on consoles. They're big into sponsoring um, YouTubers, and I don't think it's exclusivity contracts, but I can tell the money that they give them is enough that they don't need other sponsors. It's actually really non-intrusive. They're like... You know, Wargaming will pay for them as well to, like, fly to, like, a museum. And they'll be like, yeah, hey, I'm at a museum here because Wargaming sponsored me and flew me out here. And they won't show, like, an ad or anything, but they'll just say it. Because they're like, you know, this company just bankrolled me to go to a place I'd like to go anyways. So they're really good at doing that. I don't know. Maybe something like that's the the future. Yeah. I mean, despite those games being free to play, they're really successful games. Yeah, uh, there's no other video game I spent forty four thousand six hundred dollars <laughs> over the course of playing course it. Of three oh, years. Wow, four thousand six hundred dollars. The model works. The free to play works. Yeah, someone told me how to check my PayPal, and I paid all all on PayPal. They said just look for this and click this, and it'll show you and your you summary. Can, oh, it came from a, a like a thread on the official World of Warships website. It's like, you guys, do you have any idea how much you spent on this game? It's all like ten bucks here, twenty dollars yeah, shipped yeah. there. You buy one a month while well, you play for three years. They're, yeah, microtransactions. Microtransactions they add up. I yep. I actually don't regret it, but I do think what else I could have bought with all that money. Yeah, totally. So totally. I don't know. It's so hard to measure your enjoyment. It's so hard to put a value on enjoyment. Well, you know, it, it's still probably too much money, but. At the end of the day, it's been my number one game for three years, and I've never had a game like that. So when I try to explain it to myself, I subdivide how much money I would be buying a new new Prime video game each month, like okay. one a month, you know, 80 bucks a month. Yeah. And I'm still way over that, but it, it's closer. Yeah, that's... It's closer at 80 bucks a month. That's about a, a grand a year though, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's pretty close to that. Yeah, yeah. And so... But how much did you spend on Star Citizen? What did you put oh, into that? Star, uh, okay. Star Citizen was 400 bucks total, but it was a one-time thing. Right, right, right. And I actually should play that with my new computer. That's not a bomb or a scam. They actually have quite a lot working, even though they're technically in alpha right now. Right, right, right. And I, I had some fun with that game in the beginning, yeah. too. There's just some crazy stories that happened in open world. I remember there was a guy who crawled on his belly oh, to the yes. ramp to get into my cargo ship. And you Joe and I tried to, that. we were kicking him and punching him and typing at him and yelling at him with voice chat. And he didn't respond. And he just <laughs> stared up at us, like moving his head. And like, what? <laughs> like, get so the fuck out of here. <laughs> Get out of my fucking ship. <laughs> and there was the other guy who there's like a dusty back alley on the first city. He's like, hey, hey I, got, I got a special place to show you. It's really cool. You got to follow me. So I start following him. There's people. And he's like, no, it's just a little bit longer. Go into another alley, another alley. Soon there's literally like space rats going across the alley <laughs> and like tumbleweeds of garbage. And I'm like, uh, dude, like, I don't even know how to get back to the city from here. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, come on, come on. It's just, it's just over here. It's just over here. And then I was like, 
Uh, quit. <laughs> scared, I'm scared. I'm getting out of here. Oh, then there was the time. Okay, last story. Because of the realistic <laughs> physics. The game has realistic physics. There's the time I went jetpacking out of my spaceship. And then I went, I, I like took some screenshots of the sun. It was beautiful. There was a space station. And then I tried to jetpack back into the door of the, my spaceship. And I just hit it on the edge. And it starts to spin away from me. It starts to go away from me slowly and starts to spin. So then I try to go in and like angle myself. And now I hit it really bad. So it starts to cartwheel. And it's like infinite momentum. Oh, no. And then I like was like, oh, well, I'll just try to shoot my ship. And then I shot it. And then the impact made it like spin away from me super fast. And then I panicked and I like, I like just hit power. On my computer, just shut it off. I was like, I didn't know if like I would lose my shit. So entertaining. Dude, yeah, that sounds fun. That sounds fun. Um, <laughs> anyways, listener, bonus segment. Video, yeah, bonus video game variety show, <laughs> Citizen Moby. <laughs> my story. Oh, all right, let's end the oh, show it's, stuff it's, here. It's okay. We're Our everywhere. website is we are everywhere. ttpodcast.com. We're on um, iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify on your. Any of your podcasting apps, we can be found. And uh, yeah, our website has you know our show notes, some written content. Check it out if you so please. I've been Leo Steele. I've been Moby. Take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye bye. <laughs>